Welcome to this uh, webinar. Many companies are wondering how to structure their M&A transactions in China since they cannot travel and see their counterpart due to the travel restriction in place. Many transactions have been initiated before the, the pandemic. They may be suspended. However, we have seen many investors moving forward, benefit now from the fast recovery of the Chinese market. Many also have to move forward to adapt their current joint venture, their existing joint ventures, to the new applicable laws in China. How to structure your transaction in China in 2021? For this webinar, we have a guest, Michael Shai. I'm Bruno Grangier. I've been practicing in China 2004, and I'm leading LEAF, a law firm specialized in M&A with office in Shanghai, and Beijing, and, and Paris. And with Michael Shai, I'm the co-founder of the Alliance of Sino-European Lawyers, Bridging Europe and Asia. Michael, please tell us a few words. Thank you very much, Bruno. It's a pleasure to be here on this webinar today with you. My name is Michael Scheil. I'm a partner at SMB Law. And uh, together with Bruno, I'm um, the founder of our alliance between LEAF and SMB, which is an alliance, as we say, of um, Sino European lawyers dealing with cross-border transactions between China and Europe. Thank you, Michael. Today, we're going to present general principles in this webinar related to M&A transactions. Uh, but do not hesitate to contact us if you have uh, more specific questions. We will always be happy to, to provide you with a complimentary or, or a preliminary red flag review of your cases. To start, Michael, what are the incentives and challenges of the M&A transactions in China in 2021? Right. So obviously, I mean, first, um, we will be all looking at the market side. And we, we have all noticed that the um, Chinese market has made a strong um, turnaround since especially the fourth quarter of 2020. And not only are these market conditions favorable, but actually on um, the legal side, things are moving as well. So, for example, in terms of market access for foreign investors, there are certain um, liberalizations and the negative list, um, which, which defines access conditions for foreign investors in China, has basically been um, shortened. So some, some items, um, some industries, some sectors have been taken off um, the restricted list. So there is more market access being given to foreign investors, which is, which is encouraging. When we look at China's own um, industrial policy, as it is also um, formulated in the recent five-year plan, then we see this new concept of dual circulation coming up, which has been also discussed in the press. And although um, the concept is not clear in all its aspects, but apparently the domestic market shall play a more important role and um, dependency on exports shall be reduced. And, and some people, especially in the US, are also talking about decoupling. So what this will also mean for, for you as a European investor in China, you may enjoy equal treatment on the market under the new foreign investment law, 
but not necessarily and not guaranteed by law for your imported products, which you bring in from Europe, but mainly, and this is what the Chinese government has in mind, for your locally manufactured product. This is what is really encouraged, and it can be summarized as be in China for China. Cover the Chinese market with manufacturing and operations based in, in China. And, and then there will be more market access and more opportunities. So these are definitely incentives, but we obviously also have some challenges. So travels are restricted for all of us at, at this um, stage. And we all know um, for many, many years, we, we have all been, been saying, all those people who have been involved with China for, for many, many years, um, how important personal relationship is when it comes to the China business, how important is that you know your business partners. And this, of course, is a challenge right now. You may not be able to personally visit a target company to talk to the decision makers, to have a dinner together, and to get to know, you know the people. And um, your, your experts um, may, may not be able to, to travel to China, and this may influence or restrict your ability to conduct due diligence, a meaningful due diligence on the ground with your own resources. And this goes on when it comes to the post-deal integration. Your ability to second international managers from your group to work in China and to facilitate the integration may also be limited. Visa may not be available. Quarantine restrictions may make it burdensome for, for, for managers to, to come to China and so on. So this is a fact we, we have to keep in mind. But as we will um, discuss later in this webinar, we can also offer you some solutions and some approaches to mitigate these challenges. Then, of course, the cultural gaps in, in negotiations um, are always a factor which um, you have to consider. And it, it doesn't become exactly easier to deal with cultural gaps when you can only conduct online calls. You know, you cannot get basically the, the vibes or the, the, the subtext of, of, of the community. And then last but not least, one challenge will be that you have to adapt your deal structure to the evolving new legal framework in China, about which we will talk some more today, mainly the new foreign investment law and uh, local M&A regulations. So these are some of the challenges we see. Um, and now I would like to hand back to Bruno. Thank you, Michael. It's true. And um, in terms of culture, one interesting aspect is that the Chinese, uh, our Chinese counterparts are much more connected than, uh, than us. So the hyper-connectivity of the, the Chinese team is also helping a lot to reduce this communication issues. You're right, in the, in the cultural gaps, some cultural gaps are still very complex to deal with because of the distance. But the hyper-connectivity of our Chinese counterpart is also helping that and to deal with. You're right, this, this period has also uh, been very interesting because the, the Chinese m has increased actually in 2020, which is a record. The, 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 the figures are speaking, are speaking from from themselves, we have seen a lot of uh, transactions ourselves, 
And uh, somehow we, we could divide uh, the transaction in two parts, the inbound investment and the outbound investment. Of course, the biggest part of the, the business uh, remain, the biggest part of the volume remain the, the inbound investment. And I, I mean uh, the investment from foreign companies uh, investing in China. We have seen a lot of European companies or US companies consolidating positions in China during this period. For example, uh, we have seen, of course, uh, foreign companies purchasing targets to, uh, to acquire or to develop their market position. Uh, we have seen many transactions in, in the digital world, in the, the media, in, the, in different, different areas such as the food and beverage, pharmaceutical, of course, medical devices, been very active. We have seen companies actually uh, raising funds to develop the Chinese market uh, during this period. That was uh, also a very interesting uh, aspect. And um, Chinese fund partnering with uh, foreign companies to develop the, their, their market position. That was uh, one of the aspects we have seen. Of course, in the, in the European press, we talk a lot about the outbound investment, which is the Chinese companies investing overseas. What we have seen during this uh, period is a restriction uh, of the, th these investments are actually under the scrutiny of the government, uh, taking money out of China to purchase targets uh, overseas is uh, under the scrutiny of the government. And during this period, the, the control uh, have actually been even more strict. When we have seen uh, outbound investment or Chinese companies purchasing European targets. We have always worked with Chinese company with international component, which means Chinese companies being able to buy from their uh, currently existing holding companies, probably listing companies sometimes, or uh, Chinese companies with operations overseas, which are able to use these operating companies to buy targets in Europe. That's, what, that's the, the biggest part of the and Michael, I think you have also seen through your Vietnam office because you, you have a, an office in, uh, in Germany, you have an office in, in China, but you also have an office in Vietnam. I think you have also seen a lot of movement between China and Vietnam, right? Yeah, right. Uh, as, as you say, Bruno, um, besides um, China, since 2012, I have also been practicing law in, in Vietnam. And we, we also have a team in Ho Chi Minh City. and um, Obviously, some, some driving factors in, in Vietnam um, are cost issues. So some, some clients have, have kept telling me, you know, for, for some products and for some divisions, the cost situation in China just simply doesn't work for us anymore. So we, we, we face a pressure to relocate to, to another location. But, but that's not, the, the cost is not the only thing. There are also, of course, legal aspects um, to, to this. And um, just consider that um, in, in Vietnam, you have less um, mandatory joint venture requirements. So in, in, in China, there are st still some industries and, and not only services, but also manufacturing, where you still are forced by law and also the latest negative list to, to go into a joint venture. And sometimes the list will say the Chinese uh, side has to hold the controlling stake. 
or even things like the legal representative of the company must be Chinese. And um, you have less uh, such restrictions in, in Vietnam. So manufacturing is basically wide open in, in Vietnam in, in terms of the industrial policy. And um, just think that this may also mean less IP risk because as many investors know, when you go into China, you go into a joint venture, you will of course leak some of your know-how to the joint venture partner, intended or unintended. And so this may be also one aspect. And then those tax holidays, which we knew from, from China before basically 2006, when, when the tax um, laws were changed, they are still available in Vietnam. So um, you can uh, receive up to 13 years of, of tax uh, benefits in Vietnam, even for an ordinary um, manufacturing operation without any high tech. Um, and, and this is, may, may, of course, be attractive for, for some investors. If, if you actually relocate from, from China to Vietnam, then, of course, there are also some issues. For example, it may not be possible to just uh, shift your existing equipment from China to Vietnam, because similar to China, Vietnam also does not really encourage the use of secondhand machinery and import uh, of, of those equipment may, may be restricted. And, and after all, you also have to liquidate um, your entities or your operations in, in China. And as we know, um, liquidations in China can be much more complicated than establishments. So this may also take a long time and things of course have to be synchronized on both ends very well. Thank you, Michael. I'd like to come back on something you were saying that uh, during this period, uh, it was difficult to travel and um, it was difficult for companies to continue their, their M&A transaction. So maybe I'd like to say a few words about how, to, uh, how companies were able to continue their operations uh, and transaction while the country, while China was closed, actually, and while the, there was a lot of restrictions. Very, very interestingly, I think that um, the Chinese environment was able to remain super dynamic because of the, the quality of the ecosystem. And I think that China itself is an ecosystem that is very dynamic, very also well-equipped. There are the, a lot of expertise that can be found by, by companies which want to purchase targets. Of course, uh, experts in, uh, in every uh, aspect, Chinese, but also international experts. But also, I think that we have also been able, lawyers were able to find solutions to continue the transaction that were already started or were able to find a solution to initiate uh, transaction. Um, of course, the quality of uh, the bicultural deal management was a key aspect. We have been able to provide our clients with bicultural teams able to um, negotiate on, on their behalf. That's, uh, that's one thing. But also, uh, of course, uh, Tech. We were able to provide deal rooms. We were able to provide, of course, digital tools to continue the negotiation. One aspect that was interesting was also to develop a pure corporate finance team to allow clients to make a preliminary valuation and to start negotiation and offer a preliminary valuation to the targets in order to sign LOIs and enter into preliminary pre-contractual documentation that allows to open 
financial and legal and, and also technical due diligence. That was one of the key aspects that has allowed business to continue. And of course, it's true that the, the environment was safe in China. Therefore, it was an open space where people can still travel inside the country. So that has been very helpful also to continue transaction everywhere in the country. Uh, one of the questions, uh, Michael, is why are we talking about M&A and joint ventures at the same time? Ah, right. Would you like to reply to this one? Yeah, pleasure. Well, you have to see that there will be projects where you decide maybe to um, acquire not 100% of the shares of, in a target company in China, but let's say a majority share or even a minority share. And then automatically, um, according to Chinese law, you will end up in a joint venture with the um, rest of the shareholders, basically. So a joint venture will very often be the, um, or in some cases, be the result of a corporate transaction. And um, then you have to, to act within the framework, the legal framework that China has provided for joint ventures. Yeah. And uh, it's also true that uh, joint ventures have to be organized according to Chinese law, fair uh, regulation. In some cases, we can organize joint ventures on other platforms, such as Hong Kong or overseas or Singapore, with operating companies uh, being incorporated in China, but most of the time with Chinese partners, due to legal constraints, we have to actually apply uh, the, the, the Chinese law. We can come back on, on these other aspects of the, the structuring if, if there are some questions about that. Uh, maybe, Michael, let's move forward on, on the main legal changes impacting Chinese transactions. Because uh, the year 2020 was a very interesting year and created a lot of new obligations. Would you like to say a few words about that? Absolutely. So uh, the landscape has really changed. Um, we, we all remember those of you who, who have been running companies in China or investing in China or involved in joint ventures. There were special laws for the so-called FIEs or foreign invested enterprises in the past, um, going back um, already to, to the 1980s. So actually to the, I think the joint venture law was first introduced at the end of the 70s. And these were mainly the equity joint venture law, the cooperative joint venture law, and the law on wholly foreign owned enterprises. And these special laws governed um, foreign invested companies and they were applicable uh, with a priority over, um, let's say, the general company law of the PRC. And, and this has changed since 2020, when the new foreign investment law was introduced. Now, you, you could say the company law is unified in China. It applies to all legal entities, no matter whether they are foreign invested or domestic. And these old laws are gone. They, they have been abolished. Yeah. Apart from that, there are um, some other things. You see here a uh, registration system for all companies. This is also one aspect. So before, everything had to be approved by the government, pre-establishment approval. The background of this was also the government wanted to basically check your business plan. They wanted to know uh, what what you want to do? It it was a kind of a remnant of of the, of the planned economy, if, if you want to say. And domestic investors didn't have to 
obtain such approvals when they were setting up companies. So it, it was in, in a way an, an unequal treatment. And, and now it is much more unified and basically outside of the negative list. If your project doesn't fall um, into um, the negative list, you only have to do a filing or registration instead of an approval. And so it's much more close to international practice and what you know from France, Germany, or whatever US when, when you set up a company. Um, I, I just want to mention uh, this, this point. When uh, you're talking about the negative list, we have to remind that in order to invest in China, uh, first of all, the first work is to make sure that your project uh, is authorized uh, by the authorities. Uh, I mean, not is not restricted. And many projects may be uh, restricted or, or prohibited in China. But when we talk about restriction, it's mostly uh, the requirement to do a joint venture. Right, exactly, exactly. So um, under the new foreign investment law, some of the parameters have changed in, ter in terms of the corporate governance. And, and you see an overview here. Before, in, in an existing joint venture, um, and also in many um, older um, wholly foreign-owned enterprises, the board of directors was the highest decision-making organ, and the articles of association also said so. So now this is different. The shareholders meeting is the highest organ. And before, for example, the legal representative, in 99% in of the cases, was basically automatically the chairman of the board. And now there are several options. It could be the chairman. It could be the general manager. It could be the so-called executive director. And executive director basically means you have boiled down your board to one person. So instead of having a board of directors, you have one person called the executive director taking over the functions of the board. We um, see um, one or two aspects here, which I think are indeed very important to, to keep in mind majority requirements have changed. So in the old system uh, for, a, uh, for an equity joint venture, certain matters, which we may call statutory reserved matters, fundamental decisions of the company, like amending your AOA, increasing your capital, and so on, required a unanimous approval by the board. And what this meant in many joint ventures was that there could be deadlock situations if you had a 50-50 joint venture. There could be veto situations. Imagine your Chinese minority joint venture partner having only one director on the board, but this director has to sign every resolution, otherwise it can't pass. So this was um, a, a troublesome issue in, in the past for many joint venture companies. And now, under the applicability of the FIE law and the company law, we are moving to a two-thirds majority requirement. So two-thirds of voting rights in the shareholders' meeting can get even the fundamental um, decisions through. And this is, is very significant because it will allow, in fact, a shareholder with, let's say, 67% to more or less control all decisions. Good for you if you are a majority shareholder. Dangerous maybe for you if you are a minority shareholder. And uh, so the question comes up, 
can you protect yourself? And, and an interesting question is, if you hold, for example, only, well, less than one third or only exactly one third, can you define in your articles that some decisions need a super majority? And, and can you make it more than two thirds? Can you say it must be 80%? Well, actually, the question is not totally clear. There are some court decisions who have said, yes, it's valid. But it seems that some courts have also said the opposite. So um, in, in corporate practice, this is still um, a, um, a matter which needs to be more tested in time when, uh, when we have more years where, where the new laws have been applied. Changes are also visible for equity transfers. So um, before, the consent requirement of, of the other joint venture partners was also very strict because you also needed unanimous approval. And now it's, it's uh, restricted to only um, half of the other shareholders who have to agree. So basically, share transfers will be more flexible. And when it comes to profit distribution, there is also some higher degree of flexibility because the law is now saying profit distribution shall be made according to the ratio of the paid-in registered capital unless otherwise agreed. So this indicates that in a joint venture contract, parties can come to a different kind of provision or, or stipulation on the profit distribution. And this is also, I think, a welcome news. We wanted to say a few words about consolidation. Different Chinese and foreign investors have different um, viewpoints, and, and sometimes you want to consolidate. Uh, sometimes you, you are in a negotiation, and the Chinese partner is saying, we, we heard this often, we need to get more than 50% because our chairman required that this joint venture must be consolidated. Well, all right. Um, just keep in mind, um, as you know, no matter in PRC accounting rules or if you apply international accounting standards, the definition of control depends on a comprehensive assessment of factors. And um, so things will shift under the new law because majority requirements, as I just said, have changed. Um, functions of different organs in the company have changed. So you may um, need to take a new look at the question of who controls a company or a joint venture and who can consolidate. And we also recommend you to um, make sure that your articles and your shareholders agreement reflect what you properly want to achieve or that you also review existing agreements and the impact of the new law to ascertain basically the question of consolidation. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's a very important question. Uh, first of all, as we have seen, the, the corporate governance has uh, changed. And uh, I must admit that in many joint venture contracts that, that has been drafted a long time ago, there is not even a single mention to the shareholder meeting. Whereas now the shareholder meeting is the ultimate decision-making body. So that's, that's something missing. Therefore, it means that this joint venture is now subject to the uh, new applicable laws. Uh, how does it impact the, the, the capacity date where there is uh, no, no, no more restrictions in sometimes? 
And you're right. I mean, there's all the the the, the shift. The majority uh, at two thirds uh, is changing a, a lot. Also, the may have an impact on the capacity to consolidate. Um, would you like to say a few words, Michael, on the, the many legal changes impacting the JV negotiation? And what are the changes in terms of authority that are the, the relevant, the controlling authorities? Right. Um, yes, uh, certainly, Bruno. I mean, first thing I would like to say, don't be confused by all these abbreviations. Um, I, I think you all remember MOFCOM or the Ministry of Trade. Um, um, uh, from from former times, and basically now you don't hear so much about MOFCOM anymore. You hear a lot about the SAMR, and which is a um, it's called State Administration for Market Regulation, and it has very wide ranging competences, in, including basically it is the corporate register, the commercial register of China, but it um, it is also in in charge for for some antitrust matters. Um, and so um, when you acquire a company, you set up a company, you need to do your uh, filings at the local division or uh, branch of, of the AMR. Um, then, of course, um, I, I think we don't have to mention others, so please take this as a kind of overview here um, in the tables. But uh, I would like to mention SAFE because it's somehow one of my all-time Favorites in China, you always um, you are surprised how often you have to deal with the foreign exchange authority. It's not only uh, it, it starts in trade business. You have to you want to make payments outside of China. You have to talk to your bank, and the bank will uh, have to submit certain um, information to safe. But also in investments, um, um, which fall under the so-called capital account, obviously, and the capital account, the RMB is still not convertible in the capital account. It is controlled by this authority, the SAFE. And this means that um, uh, also payments uh, of loans, repayments of loans, and of course, investment payment flows in a corporate transaction will be monitored by SAFE. And, and SAFE does have some opinions on how it should be structured. So some payment terms will not be accepted by SAFE. Um, and then basically you can't pay. So you have to keep the foreign exchange regulations in mind. And then, of course, there is the um, uh, things like the NDRC, which is in charge of the National Security Review. And when you are in, in a specific industry, let's say you want to manufacture medical devices, then obviously you need some special licenses um, or pharmaceutical license to manufacture and sell your product and these licenses will be acquired after you have obtained your business license. And it needs to be very, very product specific. So you should understand which um, additional licenses and permits you need before you invest. Mm. I would say that in terms of uh, filing, there is also an important thing to mention, which is an improvement. Uh, today, uh, we don't need uh, to file the joint venture contract anymore. Therefore, before uh, we we were uh, actually facing some control and some comments from the authorities, uh, it's true that today, as we don't need to file anymore the joint venture contract, we we have more flexibility and more freedom to define contractual terms with uh, with the partner. 
And that's also an improvement that we have experienced. We have, uh, uh, and in the presentation that we can share, we have listed the main items uh, that have changed and that needs to be adapted in the existing JVs that may trigger actually a negotiation, negotiation item. So we, we can provide, uh, if, you, if some attendees are interested in, we can provide a list or a more detailed list of um, the, the, the items to be negotiated uh, after the, this change that is applicable since the beginning of 2020. An interesting uh, item is, uh, Michael, is the financing. And as you were, as you were mentioning the, the safe, I'd like to continue on the, the earnouts and the terms of payment. One big question in China, as you were saying, is how to, uh, how to remit money from, to the, to, of course, to the seller. And uh, is there any change in the applicable laws in the, in the capacity that we have to structure terms of payment of an acquisition or price adjustment uh, slash earnout? So I must admit that this part uh, of the regulation has not changed yet. We expect that uh, the MNLO will, will be adapted in the future, but today this, this part of the regulation is still uh, under the, the regulation of the MNLO that is, uh, that is still valid. So we still have a, a lot of constraints in the, in the structuring of uh, terms of payment. The main idea is that when a foreign company is purchasing a Chinese target, the, the payment term is uh, under the scrutiny of the authorities. And, and normally the payment has to be done uh, within a certain timeline that is slightly adaptable. Normally uh, we can structure payments so that uh, the payment is, is done at the maximum of one year. But most, I mean, according to the law today, we are supposed to pay uh, under special circumstances, normally within six months. The, the, the terms of payment are very short. And if we follow actually the, the legal principle, just the, the, the timeline for the payment of a purchase price shall be done within three months from the uh, issuance of the new business license. Therefore, as you can see, it will make nearly impossible to structure an earn-out payment as we know it, uh, a real earn-out where a purchaser is purchasing 100% and is uh, structuring price adjustment depending on some trigger events that are defined in SPA. This is not an option in China unless, of course, unless we can uh, use some local companies to structure the transaction, unless we we have a more uh, sophisticated structure. But if we, if we follow the, the rules as of date, the foreign company purchasing a target company in China is still under some very strict constraint to structure the terms of payment and the price adjustment that may be requested. So we see a lot of transactions actually being cut into several tranches and the purchaser may still take the risk to face, of course, the risk or the problem of discussing with the partner in order to exercise a call option to buy back additional shares of the, the capital of the target company. It being said that, of course, if 
if the, the partner is not cooperating, of course, the, the exercise of the call option may be more complex uh, if you consider the fact that this call option will be subject to the uh, filing with the authorities. And of course, the implementation of the filing will require some documents to be signed or to be provided by the, by the seller. So still, you know, let's be very careful on the structuring of a MOU or letter of intent when we are discussing with, um, with target companies. And it's because these terms are, are very, uh, uh, very specific to the Chinese business. Um, in terms of yeah, in terms of pricing, purchase of uh, equity of a target company, uh, the first actually, uh, if you are purchasing 100% of a target company and you're using a foreign vehicle to purchase, uh, you will still be subject to valuation reports that need to be taken into consideration. We see a lot of flexibility in practice in, in, uh, in the organization of this valuation, but still we, uh, we will have to go through this, uh, this valuation process. There may be more flexibility uh, in order to exercise a call option once the target company has been transformed into a joint venture for the purchasing of other portion of the capital, there may be much more flexibility in the pricing, which may give actually option to do some structuring or interesting structuring options and price adjustment. But this, this portion of the M&A law, the pricing and is, still, uh, is still the same since many years. We hope there will be some, uh, some improvement. Well, oh, if you allow me a question which just comes to my mind, is, is this, I mean, certain, are these limitations in, in terms of, of um, designing payment terms one reason that, um, for example, structuring um, acquisitions through offshore, for example, via acquiring stakes in a Hong Kong holding company, or a Singapore holding company, um, still uh, one, one reason why those kind of offshore structures may still be an interesting option for, for, for M&A deals in China. We, we use a lot of offshore structures, and a lot of Hong Kong structure in order to access to a more contractual environment. And when it's possible, uh, we will use uh, Hong Kong vehicle, Hong Kong SPVs, in order to structure a transaction and also to access to uh, another regulation, which is the Hong Kong corporate law, that will uh, be more familiar to uh, foreign investors. So, and for example, it's true that um, all the, uh, the tools that we see in private equity for fundraising, all the contractual tools and all the, the specific contractual um, you know specific stipulation that you see such as of course uh, mm. an automatic call option but also ratchet clause uh, mm. any liquidation procedures that may be applicable in in PE are actually applied and applicable in Hong Kong more automatically than in China so it's true that using this vehicle may be an advantage of course the choice of the vehicle may be guided by the by the situation and uh, the, um, the status of the Chinese investor. 
Actually, I'd like to remind that uh, when we are talking to uh, talking about a Chinese investor, we are talking about the mainland, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, or uh, Macau citizen are still considered as per the regulation as foreign investors. So, Michael, we, we have seen that uh, these changes in the regulation are impacting the, the negotiation and may push us to, uh, to change our JVs and to start a negotiation with our JV partners. What is your advice and what is your position on when we should start negotiation? Right, good question. Oh, no. I mean, obviously, um, let's start from the fact the new FIE law is already in force already a valid law and so the new structure generally speaking um, will apply obviously to all new establishments but but also to existing companies but there is a kind of grandfathering or transition period of five years but what we would recommend is um, start by assessing your, your current structure and organization um, take out your old joint venture contract, your articles of association, and see whether it is in line with um, the new um, structure and try to start to make um, a plan which points and items may need to be modified and changed and anticipate the necessary negotiations with your co-shareholders, especially with the Chinese partner and analyze that obviously there may be different interest positions regarding this and the whole process may not be so easy and may take some negotiation time. It may even potentially also end up in a kind of deadlock when two parties cannot agree on how to modify um, the structure and make it compliant with the new legal regime. Yeah. And Sin is, is very, very clear. December 31st, 2024 is, is your deadline. By that time, all companies have to be compliant with the new structure. And we know from previous changes of the law, one thing that may happen in China is when you have another corporate change, for example, let's say you want to increase your registered capital or you change your address, you go to the authority, to the AMI, and you want to make a filing. And the official will tell you, I'm very happy to do that for you. And by the way, you also have to change your corporate structure. And why don't you do it now? You know? So um, any other change may, may be taken up as a situation where you are pressured somehow to, to, make, um, to adapt your corporate structure early. Yeah. So that's one more reason why you should be prepared for this. It may actually be very dramatic in, a, in, the, in the case of a capital increase because, uh, of course, you may think, oh, if you... We cannot do the capital increase right now. Let's do shareholder loans. But uh, uh, don't forget that what Michael was, was saying earlier on, um, injecting cash in China is subject to uh, the SAFE, I mean, the, the foreign exchange regulation. Therefore, uh, foreign shareholders are not free to inject cash or, or, or you know, lend money to their subsidiary. So you may be in a situation where you need to inject revenues and, and of course, uh, face the, the tax impact that is related to, uh, to, to these things or, or be completely blocked because of your uh, situation with your Chinese partner. In China, it's true that we shall, not, uh, we shall not wait or we shall anticipate because of there is the time of the negotiation. 
which may be longer to the, to the cultural gap, but also to the constraint of language, take time, but also the time of the filing and the time of the reaction of the authorities that needs to be taken into account in a business plan or in a, in a timeline. That's a very important. Well, I think it's, uh, it's, we can move forward to the conclusion, Michael, uh, and, and maybe go through the key takeaways. So what is uh, the first key takeaway? Right. So as we just said, due to the new laws, mainly the foreign investment law, since 2020, the corporate governance and also um, related to that, um, your capacity to consolidate a, a joint venture must be rechecked and reviewed by you. The second key point is that specific regulation have an impact on the way to finance the deal and to structure the financing of joint ventures, especially when earn-out payments are involved. This is not an evolution, but this is something to take into account when you're planning, you're restructuring, or, or your, your deal in China. Right, and number three would be that, as we said, end of year 2024 is the final deadline, but, but don't bet on that, that you really have so much time. Uh, the issue may hit you much earlier. What we recommend is a proactive stance and that you start by reviewing and, and making, defining an agenda, how to adapt your corporate structure basically very soon. Yeah, plan your negotiation in advance. Take all the, the necessary aspects into consideration, the cultural aspects, cultural gaps, and uh, the impact of the administrative filings and, uh, and approvals, especially when specific licenses are requested. Uh, you may actually face uh, business interruption if the, the planning is not done carefully. Michael, maybe a few words about why doing this joint alliance together? Yeah, of course. Um, good question, Bruno. I mean, obvious factors are, of course, that we bring together different jurisdictions. We bring together different legal and, and working cultures and different client portfolios. We, we also, I think, um, bring together a very good and broad coverage of a lot of industries and, and sectors in China on which both our teams have, have worked, be it service industries, be it, of course, classical manufacturing, be it you know, well-established industries or be it new industries. We, we have been active on, on all these aspects with slightly different focus on the LEAF side and the SMB side. And resulting from that, what we have developed together is um, what, what we call the 360 degree approach to the deal. So um, obviously preparing and implementing a successful M&A transaction in China is not only corporate law. There are much more things and we are able to cover these aspects as well. Obviously the IP side um, should, should never be neglected. You want to make sure you are aware of of IP risks and issues connected to the target company, you would like to conduct a solid IP due diligence and uh, consider also IP risks arising from the partnership itself. Yeah, it's uh, even more true. It's even more true that now China is producing uh, IP uh, and more and more IP, of course, 
it's interesting to see that in the context of MA, you have been doing a lot of uh, IP audit in order to validate the potential value yeah. of the portfolio. It is definitely, as you say, it is definitely wise before you get into a joint venture or you acquire a target to understand um, the other side's IP position very well. Mm. And some, some investors would be very surprised at a later stage to, to, to see um, what kind of patent applications um, have been done by maybe a uh, Chinese partner. And so this is one aspect. But then, of course, there may be antitrust aspects. There may be product regulation and product license transition items. Just consider that, as I said, for example, you are manufacturing medical devices. Maybe the target company has got the necessary licenses, but you want to do an asset deal and you transfer the assets to a new entity. And will the new entity be entitled to basically produce and sell the product under the existing product licenses? Because in Chinese law, the general principle is product licenses cannot be transferred. So um, this is one, one issue where avoiding a business interruption due to lack of product license is, is also one thing which needs very careful planning. Then I would like to mention construction and real estate. You, you all know how particular the Chinese laws and regulations are when it comes to land use rights. So um, you have to check very, very properly the site conditions and the legal conditions of usage for, for, for an industrial site in an acquisition. And this is something which we also cover and for which we have special experienced practitioners who, who work on, on, on that side. And bringing all these aspects together is what we think makes our M&A team special and, and um, a, a good proposition. I'd like also to insist on the, the, the very advanced regulation related to data protection and more generally to what China called cybersecurity law. The, for example, here we have a, a team of 10 persons dedicated to uh, suspect cybersecurity, which involve actually uh, an equivalent of the GDPR, but also a much more advanced regulation on the infrastructure itself, which now is very strongly impacting MNA transaction and so, uh, tech the, and digital risk management. Michael, we have a, a few questions. Well, the first question is, what can we say briefly about uh, the outbound investment changes recently? What is the situation or what is your vision of the outbound investment? One thing you have to see here is that the level of review and scrutiny of Chinese investments in Europe is evolving. And generally speaking, it is becoming more strict. The legal framework, as you may know, in the EU and many member countries, defining some circumstances in which a Chinese investment can be blocked for um, because it endangers the safety of, 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 of the national economy or market has, has been expanded. So this may, be, may, may lead to some obstacles for some Chinese or to a greater degree of, of, of checking. Yeah. And also the funds on the Chinese side um, are more tightly restricted for outbound investment recently. Clearly, uh, China has closed the capacity of uh, Chinese investors to 
to operate in uh, hotel industry. Some there, there, there were a lot of areas that were very active uh, in Europe and that has been clearly closed. And we have seen increasing level of restriction in the in the real estate, the hospitality business, and 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 there is a clear list of uh, business that have been restricted. I'd like also to add that when we see outbound investment, there is still, uh, I, would, I would say, a form of investment of Chinese companies in, in, in Europe or in, in basically overseas, but again, with the international component. Uh, when you see a lot of Chinese companies listed on the NASDAQ market or even on the Hong Kong market, they have the funding already outside China, and, and these are the companies that should be considered as a let's say, a potential uh, strong investor if you are contemplating outbound investment or if you're contemplating an operation with a Chinese potential investor. And maybe last remark to this point, obviously China also has some regulations for certain approvals which a company needs to obtain in China in order to be allowed to make an outbound investment. Yes. And some, some Chinese companies, they have an interest in acquiring a target. And then during the process, they find out that they can't obtain some of those necessary approvals and then the process can be interrupted. Exactly. Another question, sorry, which is, what is our experience with the new SMR filing system? Um, what is the main difference, the uh, approval system by Mofcom before? What is our comment on the, the examination of the... A very good question. I have been often wondering about this point in my practice in the last years. I mean, in theory, it should be very clear. Approval means that basically a contract or a business proposal will be substantively checked by the authority. And when you move to registration, it should mean that it isn't done anymore, that it's not reviewed for its business objectives and, and for, 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 for other substantive means. It, mm. Registration, there is still a review, but the correct understanding should be it is limited to a kind of formal compliance with the company law as such. Generally, it is moving in this direction, but sometimes, and I, I would be interested to know what your experience is or how would you, you would comment, but sometimes it seems certain officials in some locations are not yet very clear how the system has changed because sometimes we still receive some comments which seem to be related to some substantive issues or to how some clauses are drafted and so on. But generally, it is definitely getting less. There is a clearly a streamlining of the procedure. It's going faster. Ten years ago, there were a lot of questions. There were a lot of uh, amendments requested by the authorities. And the filing could take months and a half, sometimes more, maybe two months. These days, when we file operation in uh, first-tier city uh, or on the main cities, uh, let's take Sh Shanghai or Beijing, within uh, two weeks, then we can now get uh, the filing done. The first thing. And the second thing is, there was a, an improvement in the in the license. Uh, there was a merging of the of the licenses. Therefore, before after the filing and getting the business license, we were supposed to get other filings done with the tax bureau and uh, and other authorities. Been simplified, of course. It's not covering the specific authorities mentioned earlier on by Michael, such as the FDF. And, 
Donc, oui, de FDA anymore, but the, 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 the former FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, or any other authority. We have another question. It is, what are there industries in China that are exceptionally, exceptionally attractive for foreign investment in the near future? And if you allow me, Michael, I, I would say that we are uh, lucky uh, that in China we have a plan. So this uh, is a, a very uh, instructive document that will allow all the foreign investors to know where they should concentrate their forces. <laughs> uh, maybe if you want to say a few words about that. If, if I may say so, your answer is very shows your long China experience. Um, <laughs> of, of course, it, it is one way uh, to, to seek for orientation in China um, by looking at what the Chinese government is saying. And um, it is, uh, of course, a very authoritative source. So I, I absolutely don't want to, to deny that. There, there may, of course, be individual considerations for certain investors. So someone might have discovered a very interesting niche which other people haven't seen or which maybe the industrial policy of the government is not highlighting, but still for, for you, it may be a fantastic chance in China to, to invest into this niche market. And this is not a legal topic, but you can follow trends or you cannot follow trends. You can also invest against trends or in anti-cyclical way. So um, this is probably like, It, it, it depends on your wisdom and, and strategic wisdom as an investor. I, I can add that um, when we are visiting uh, authorities, uh, we see a lot of appetite for tech. Of course, uh, high-tech projects are highly demanded by the authorities. Of course, um, semiconductors projects these days are on the top of the, the food chain, I would say. But we see a lot of um, demand for any electric car-related uh, project, auto, uh, and, uh, and of course, um, artificial intelligence. Actually, it's very interesting to, to visit the authorities because they will be ready to, uh, to give a lot of subsidies under the form of um, either uh, land or of you know, reduction of the price of the land use rights, but also tax incentives, refund of taxes. These are... Uh, There are a lot of financial tools to attract financial investors in, uh, in tech business. We can also provide lists of uh, articles to uh, attendees that are interested. One last question, maybe. Would we generally recommend acquisition of an existing Chinese target instead of greenfield investment, uh, which is establishing a new uh, company in China? So, if, if I may, pros and cons. If, if I may put forward some initial thoughts. I mean, we said initially, we, we are living in difficult times and, and travel is restricted. And I'm just thinking this may be one reason which may make acquiring an existing target very interesting right now, because um, setting up a greenfield operation, your ability to do that for, for some investors may be limited at the moment you cannot send all your aspects to do that so if you have a local workforce in china who can do that very well then greenfield may still be uh, preferable for you in in terms of avoiding some existing risks and liabilities of of a target company but if you want to be quick to market you know and start operations with a favorable cost input as well 
because probably the Chinese investor will have built up their production capacities at much lower cost than you can do it uh, in many industries. This is what, what I have seen at least or learned from clients. And um, so this may be still, still an advantage um, for, for acquisitions. And, and right now, the, as I said, it, it may be practically more difficult um, to, to implement some greenfield investment. That's right. Uh, I think that, um, if I may say, we, we should answer to this question the same way as we, we would answer that in Europe or in any other country. What is the, what is the strategy and what is the, the, the timing of the market? That's, that's one aspect of the, of the thing. So it's, it's really uh, a business strategy uh, question, more than a legal question. However, I would say that in some markets which are uh, dominated by state-owned companies or um, uh, if your clients are state-owned companies, it may be much more efficient, commercially speaking, to partner with a, with a Chinese, uh, Chinese specialist or with a Chinese expert uh, instead of trying to enter into this market uh, alone. Accessing also to the right talent may be... Um, if you are if you are already in the market, that that's uh, that may be easier for you. But if you're not in this market and you don't know how to manage the team, it may be interesting to to buy a target in order to access to the right talent. So, but again, this is more a strategic question than a, a pure legal question. The legal aspect would be to say sometimes you don't have the choice because the the, the, the negative list or the catalog basically of investment will force you to be involved with the Chinese partner. In some uh, in some areas, I think it's time to uh, to end our digital event. We hope that you have enjoyed this uh, discussion. Thank you also from my side. It has been a pleasure to um, to share this with you. Be safe and have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs>